Welcome to the History and Physical, the official podcast of In Training, the online magazine for medical students. We're your hosts, Kevin Wong, Amol Donker, and Rohit Kakade. Danielle Ofri is an essayist, editor, and practicing internist in New York City. She's an attending physician at Bellevue Hospital and associate professor of medicine at New York University School of Medicine. She's also editor-in-chief of the Bellevue Literary Review and a regular contributor to the New York Times Health section. She obtained her undergraduate degree in physiology from McGill University, and she graduated from NYU School of Medicine with an MD and a PhD in pharmacology. She's trained in internal medicine at NYU's Bellevue Hospital. So we talked to Dr. Ofri this week about... First and foremost, it's about clinical empathy. So driving from her latest book, What Doctors Feel, we talked about this idea of what empathy is. But empathy is the understanding of the needs of the patient exhibiting a concern for the patient's needs, right? But one of the biggest things we talked to Dr. Ofri about is declining empathy that happens throughout medical school. This recent is a downward trend in how students express themselves empathetically, how they sort of relate to patients, how they perceive patient care, closing off emotionally. And that's concerning to medical students because, wait, I read the wrong one, sorry. Okay, I'll start over. So we talked to Dr. Ofri this week about clinical empathy, understanding the needs of the patient, exhibiting a concern for the patient's needs, and the decline of that empathy throughout the course of medical school. We know that to be concerning because empathy is tied to patient outcomes and patient satisfaction. So for medical students this week, we talked to Dr. Ofri about why that decline happens, how medical students can cope with the transition, and how they can preserve their empathy sort of throughout the introduction to their career and beyond. We then move into a fascinating discussion of how empathy and medical humanism fits into the current climate of evidence-based medicine. So today in medicine, there's a shift to sort of quality metrics or sort of meeting, uh, meeting meaningful use targets or things like that. But what do you do when there's sort of these quantitative targets and how do you incorporate the things that, as Dr. Ofri says, can't fit onto a spreadsheet in more quantitative moments of care? From there, we have a great discussion lined up about how Dr. Ofri's career trajectory is going from being an MD-PhD student to a scholar of medical humanities. and a reflection at the end about her own favorite writers. Let's get started. Um, so thank you, Dr. Alfred, for agreeing to do this interview on the History and Physical podcast. Um, this You're is welcome. very exciting, and I think it's actually our first in-person interview that we've conducted. Um, so I understand that you have a, a busy schedule, so I'll try to keep the questions nice and concise. But um, we've actually gone and uh, crowdsourced a lot of our questions from a lot of the people that listen to the podcast, mm-hmm. and so we're very excited to, to kind of um, introduce them. Um, so we want to try to avoid questions that you might have been asked before, but of course, since we have a medical school audience, one of the biggest questions that we get um, is especially amongst entering third-year medical students, is how to maintain the empathy. You've maintained, you've stated um, in, I think, multiple interviews that the third-year medical school is kind of the beginning of the end of empathy. And so a lot of students were interested in how to try to preserve that and how to um, maybe even increase the level of empathy now that they're in constant contact with patients and their narratives. Well, I wouldn't 
go so far to say it's the beginning of the end. It's certainly a time where empathy and our professionalism, our ideals are challenged, I'll say, where we really feel that the, the reasons we came into medical school, these idealistic reasons come into contact with reality, and often reality isn't quite what we expected it to be, and partly that's because the world of clinical medicine is so different than the world of book medicine, and, and the reality of, of human beings, and especially when they're sick, is illogical, difficult, irrational, and the way doctors act in these situations is also illogical, irrational, and often, often difficult. And, and for many of us, we, we feel that, that the things that we hold dear and true seem not to be of value on the wards. What I've learned is that I think the values are still there, but they're harder to see. So finding a good mentor, now often you don't have a choice in who your attending is or resident, but in, in the vast kind of machinery of clinical medicine, you might be able to spot one or two people who seem to be the kind of doctors you, you want to be and, and certainly gravitate toward them, talk to them about your experiences. Hopefully your attendings will be able to model some of that important behavior despite all, all, all the chaos. And sometimes it's a matter of keeping connection to the outside world. What were the things that made you who you are? Uh, often when I start a new month, I'll ask the, the students and the interns, you know, tell me your name, where you're from, and the, the most recent book you've read, which always is a difficult question. But then, what's your passion or hobby? Or what did it used to be? And people have these wistful tales of things they used to love to do, and kind of like layers of an onion. We shed these layers as we move along in our medical training. By the time we get through as doctors, we've lost many of the things that made us who we are. And so my advice is to try and find a few minutes to stitch those things back into our lives, whether it's music, literature, family, cooking, music, um, um, film, things that make you um, multidimensional. And, and not just because they're interesting and different from medicine, but also because these things, especially the humanities, hold a lot of the important morals and values that, that we, we want to treasure, even though we're being tested you know, in the clinical waters. Keeping in touch with literature and music, for example, can keep some of those things aligned. So um, finding a good mentor, um, identifying those who you don't want to be like, and, and when you're with them, just keep in mind, this is not the doctor I want to be. Finding an ally, keeping some pieces of you together, and remembering that this is also temporary, and that when you finish, and it will finish, you can create the kind of medicine you would like to practice. So with the type of medicine you'd like to practice, um, you, you're referring to when you become a, an attending or you have a bit more authority and a bit more freedom to, to create your, your own path. Yes, so we, we, one, one thing in medicine is very hierarchical and as a student or an intern, you can't really create the medicine you want to practice, but you can later. Although I will say, you can create the microenvironment. So, and, and even now today as an attending, you know, we're, our lives are awash in bureaucracy and paperwork and electronic medical record and it can be very frustrating but I still get to close the door and it's just me and the patient in the room and no one at least at this point is watching us and so I can create the microenvironment I want and you as the student when you see the patient on, on the wards or in the clinic you can physically or metaphorically close the door to the outside world and you can create a space and it could be just a few minutes or a small amount of space or time but you can create the medicine that you want you know in that little space and sometimes the smallest thing, like finding out about who the patient is. Many of my patients are immigrants, so I always ask them what country they're from, 
when and how they came to America. And their stories of coming to America define, often define who they are, their circumstances, and I learned so much. Or I asked my patients, what is your passion or hobby? It's a three-minute discussion, but it can be an incredible experience, especially with difficult patients or patients who don't really like drug addicts, homeless, alcoholics, those kind of difficult patients. I remember going up to a, we had a homeless alcoholic, frequent flyer guy, really annoying patient, and he was refusing a CT scan. The team was really angry with him. And so when we were getting nowhere, I finally asked him what his hobby was. And he said when he was a kid, he loved Greek mythology. And he used to cut class and go to the Jersey Shore and read Greek mythology. It was not really the expected thing for this kind of scungy, smelly guy from the Bowery, but it totally changed the dynamic. And he didn't suddenly reform his ways and become, you know, an abstinent uh, law-abiding citizen, but we had a much easier interaction. So in our small little interview, we could create the, the medicine that we wanted, so it still can be done. It's not necessarily the easiest thing, but it's also not impossible. Thank you for that, for that answer. So um, you mentioned how you were able to, to pack all that connection, all that history, or connected history with the patient within three minutes. Um, was this something that you gradually learned as, as a practicing physician to, to squeeze that level of connection within the 15-minute visit that, that you have with patients? Well, I think you'll find that when you actually ask, it doesn't take that long. It may sound like it takes a long time or feel like it takes a long time, but it actually doesn't. You know, three or four minutes of finding out who they are, who their family is, what's the big issue of the day for them, I find that very key. That, you know, I'm maybe lecturing about someone's A1C and their diabetes, but if they have an ill parent, you know, back home in Guatemala, that's their focus. And so if I ask about that and write it down, and so the next time I can ask them, how's your mother in Guatemala, you know, I've gained a lot clinically with them and a lot of trust. I've also gained a connection to make it interesting. Otherwise, you know, treating diabetes, you know, it can be very cut and dry, mm -hmm. but working with a patient or person isn't. Okay, so speaking, following up on the cut and dry of medicine, um, one of the biggest trends that's been happening, um, and I mean, personally, I, I've experienced it as part of my research, has been the, the increasing algorithmic nature of medicine, the, the rise of evidence-based medicine and standardized clinical pathways and, and compliance with those pathways um, based on the electronic health record or auditing. Um, do you feel that that is kind of infringing upon the, the more personal clinical nature of medicine? Um, I mean, you've seen a huge uptick in, in the number of medical students either wanting to go into population health and view whole populations or whole, whole um, groups of patient cohorts, and as well as the rise of uh, medical students and uh, administrative staff who are seeking MBAs before they graduate or seeking MBAs after they graduate so that they can um, go more into administration or more into the management of a hospital. Um, do, do you feel that that's kind of thanks to the hidden algorithm of um, the hidden curriculum that, that uh, students need to go for efficiency and that they need to go for um, getting patients out and, and making sure that the hospital system is sustainable? Well, there, there are a lot of facets to answering that question. Um, so, so one is that I don't, you know, deride having evidence-based medicine, having algorithms. I think there's an important role. What I get concerned about is that when, when that becomes the only role. So for an example, take the word quality, a, a word that, that makes me shudder, because what, what does that mean? So for example, we, we do a quality measurement on our diabetic patients looking at what percentage of our patients have an A1C under 7. That's the goal. Now, that's an important goal, 
And it sounds scientific, it sounds numerical, objective, and real. But of course medicine is not that because we deal with people who, who don't fit into checkboxes quite, quite that way. So for example, I have a patient, I saw her last week, her A1C has never been a single digit. It has been 10 and above for years. It's because she won't take insulin. Now, I could be really nasty to her and she'll leave my practice and my numbers will be better. Or I could do good medicine and keep my relationship with her and keep her coming, keep working. She stays in my practice, gets medical care, but she worsens my numbers. So what's quality? Which one is it? So I, I feel as though when we use just the percentage of patients with A1C under seven, we're not comprehending that keeping patients with poor control in medical practice is also quality. So I, it's a bit like the blind man and the elephant. You know, we measure what's easy to measure, but that's only one aspect of medical care. And there's a whole other range. So I think it's important to measure that, but that can't be the sole criteria. We have to understand that medicine is much bigger. There needs to be room for the things that don't fit onto spreadsheets. Maintaining a connection with this patient to keep coming to the doctor, that's a huge victory. In, in medical care. I mean, she could leave and then her diabetes would, would you know, spiral out of control and she'd be the person who comes in, you know, uremic and, and, and hyperkalemic and, and then a cardiac arrest. And so maybe I'm giving her good quality care. I can't force her to take her insulin, but I can keep her getting care and she still gets her vaccinations and her mammograms. So we've had quality, but it's measured as a failure uh, you know, on my quality report card. So that's one, one part of this that, you know, is of concern to me. Um, the second is that I, I do agree that population health is very important. I think that we should be looking at that, but we also need to remember that population individuals are different. And medical care still, thankfully, is a one-on-one -on -one endeavor. So we can use the population information, but again, when we make a clinical guideline that, that you know, fits everyone into the same thing because that's what the population does, it ignores the reality and the sophistication of medicine that's not quite that simple. I don't have the answer of how to measure the difficult human parts of medicine, but I think we know it when we see it. This patient is a great example of that. Um, but your question about whether it is the interest comes from the loss of empathy, that's an interesting one. Um, it might, it might. Um, I think that we do tend to be seduced by the computer's algorithms of what equals efficiency that if we you know, get these things done, we're efficient, well, and, and, and that's um, it's enticing because it looks good on, on, on paper. Um, the same thing you know, when I see my patients in clinic and I X off the patients I see, and if I only if, if, I'll see a few, I'm deemed as inefficient. Now, if I'm using the time to call my patients, to check on their labs, to follow up with them, that isn't captured, so I'm considered inefficient. So. So we don't have a good me measurement for that. So I just don't want to mix up efficiency with what is good medical care. I'm not sure if I fully answered your question, but those are some thoughts on it. No, I, I think it's, it's a very valuable perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of um, my job and, and the job of my colleagues mm -hmm. who, are, who are medical student researchers is usually um, looking at patients through the perspective of a computer. So we, we read the patient chart instead of actually interviewing the patients, looking for different metrics right, that we can track. It would seem contract. like people who do that, and including hospital administrators, ought to spend one morning a week in clinic with actual patients. And I, I think about it, many of our administrators have not ever sat in a room with a patient. And, and I think it would be very uh, a helpful balance that people who do do population medicine and do administer hospital also spend some amount of time, it could be small, 
with actual patients on the wards in the clinic or in the teaching setting to do keep that 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 grounding that you you can't fit patients so easily you know into those boxes yesterday in clinic i had one of my most challenging patients a woman with really every organ system down you know congestive heart failure and chronic renal failure and gout and uh, and pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary fibrosis on oxygen and really take, takes forever, forever. In the middle of that visit, I get a knock on the door that my deaf mute patient has arrived and the interpreter is here now and I can only see that patient with the sign language interpreter. Um, but I have this patient who's you know, quite, quite ill and you know, that's what medical care is like. These are the realities. Not everyone fits in, in that box. And if you haven't done that, had that experience, so what do I do? Do I stop seeing my patient on oxygen in the wheelchair for, for the deaf mute patient so I can use the interpreter? Otherwise, I can't communicate with him. You're, it's not very efficient, but it is the reality of how patients' lives are, are led. And we have to meet them on, on their territory. And it isn't so easy to boil it down to a spreadsheet. Right. And I imagine that the entire reason administrators usually get into healthcare. Um, is because of the, the, the personal, the human drama related to it. I mean, uh, if it was purely for financial reasons, there, there are many other fields, many other industries. I, I wholly agree, and I, I don't fault mm-hmm. people. I think we need people doing administration, and I'm glad that people who enjoy that and are good at that are doing that because I recognize our hospital needs to remain solvent. We need to be able to keep the, the enterprise running. But I do think a dose of, of the actuality of, of patient care it was so interesting when Hurricane Sandy hit, you know, we lost uh, power and water and we had to evacuate, but there were, so there were some days in the hospital where we didn't have our computers and our typical ways of communicating and delivering medicine. It was so interesting. And in some ways, it was incredible. It was some of the best days to be doing medicine. Everyone had to talk to each other. Everyone had to go to the bedside to do anything. And it sort of brought it back to this... Uh, and old-fashioned is really not the right term. I don't want to uh, romanticize, you know, days of yore. I don't want to go back without vaccinations and MRIs. But, I, but it did force us to communicate in a way that was powerful. And, and I think people found it inspiring. And so, people really enjoyed that time very much, despite the difficulties. So it distilled the whole practice of medicine back to its core. Back to actual you know, back medicine. To the, back to the patient. Right. We weren't checking off boxes on, you know, on EMR. We were actually doing patient care. And that was really all we did. And it was fantastic, that, as hard as it was. That's a pretty touching story. Um, so I think shifting gears um, and, and moving, I think, towards some of your career origins, um, we have very one interesting question. Um, and this came from my, my co-host, Amol uh, Utrankar. And it's, what inspired you to branch out from your origins as a physician scientist uh, to literature and narrative medicine? Um, your work offers a sense of awareness, almost as if to inoculate and makes them better prepared, um, that students better prepared to handle the emotional tools that await them in practice and to be more motivated to strive for self-preservation amidst it all. Um, and his main question is, besides what drove you to change to literature, but what authors inspired you and prepared you in the way that some of us look up to you as a role model? One thing I've learned from my career thus far is that I, I put a, a little more stock in luck and chance and a little less in planning because we all come from very neurotic, you know, planned backgrounds and we all, you know, stay on that path and, and I certainly did too and I did an MD-PhD and I spent time in the lab which I loved and I really planned to be a physician scientist um, and I was going into neurology because I was a neuroscientist. But then when I did my internship at Bellevue, I fell in love with the messy nature of clinical medicine and ended up staying there. Um, and I'd never taken any time off. 
my training was during the height of the AIDS epidemic. So it was kind of a, a difficult time to train. I mean, our patients were, you know, ragingly ill, um, sick. They were our age and they were dying um, quickly. And there wasn't a lot that, that we could do. And they were just deathly, deathly ill. And, and we spent a lot of time very much mired in death. At the same time, I, when I was an intern, one of my very close friends died of a sudden cardiac arrest from IHSS which he was asymptomatic from, and he simply dropped it at age 27. And I remember the shock of, of that amidst all my other patients of the same age dying. And that was the first moment when I started thinking, why am I racing, what am I racing toward? You know, I'm just doing my high school and college and MD and my PhD and my residency and chief residency, and I thought, I think I need to take some time away. And I turned down a chief residency and decided to take some time off which my advisors all thought was a terrible idea. 201, they said, you'll forget your clinical skills, you'll lose your connections, you'll never get back into academic medicine, you're making a grave career error. Um, but I remember I spoke to someone who's a social worker, not affiliated with the medical field. She said, you know, I think they might be jealous. And when she said that, it clicked in my head. And I said, I am out of here. And I took off what turned out to be for a year and a half. I supported myself by doing welcome tendons, which is sort of temp work, all around the country, which turned out to be a fascinating education because I worked in other settings. I'd only been in a tertiary care academic center. I worked in community clinics, private practice, Catholic medical center, HMO, and so I learned a lot about how medicine is practiced in the rest of you know the country. But in between, I traveled in South America as far as the, my money would last, and that was the first time I started, I felt the desire to write down the stories of what I had experienced. And I remember as I was going through residency, I was aware acutely that these are incredible moments, that I will never be this close to such an intense experience, and I should write these things down. But I found that I, I couldn't, and whether it was because we were simply too busy, and certainly, you know, this patient died and another patient came in 20 minutes later into that bed, there wasn't any time. But I think it was also too close to the emotional bone, and I needed to be away physically, um, temporally, I'm out of the death zone of, of, of HIV, you know, to somewhere in, in you know, Ecuador. And then I began writing the stories down, not with any plan to, to be a writer or write a book, but just to put them down because they felt like I was holding them and the, the weight was so heavy that I had to put them down. And when I later came back to New York and I really wanted to come back to Bellevue, um, I, there was a, a financial crisis and a hiring freeze. And when the freeze unfroze, there was only a three-day week attending spot open, which I hadn't ever thought about, but I had student loans, so I took it. And on the remaining days, I began more writing. I picked up a writing brochure off the street and just took a writing class and began to work on the stories and send them out. And then one day, my writing teacher said, you know, I, I missed a subway stop reading one of your stories. It's time for you to you know, get an agent and start putting this together. And so it, these stories formed my first book, Singular Intimacies, and then it kind of self-created from there. And then we started the Bellevue Literary Review, again, not necessarily in the cards. And so I found that my entire sort of life outside of clinical medicine was editing, writing, publishing, and again, I never would have predicted this. Every so often I have lunch with my PhD advisor, and he's just kind of a little wistful that I didn't, you know, I was his last graduate student, I didn't stay in the lab. But you never know. You never know where life will lead. Great. Um, and so going to the second part of the question um, on what authors kind of inspired you, um, was it Chekhov or...? 
was I, I love Chekhov, I love Abraham Verghese, but the, the authors that really, you know, pre-medicine always inspired me were the magical realists. You know, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Mario Valdeciosa. I um, and I think it's because we're so grounded in the in the physicality of medicine, in in in, in the absolute um, concreteness of illness. And magical realism is this way of escape that we cannot do. We are evidence-based medicine, and so it's so antithetical that it's so tempting. And to read Love in the Time of Cholera or A Hundred Years of Solitude and watch, it's not fantasy. It's taking the reality and just spinning it. And sometimes when you're on the wards, you almost imagine, could we just sort of twist it around and, 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 and move things for this patient, um, for, for our life, you know, in the depths of being on night float as an intern. There were times when I just wished for Gabriel Garcia Marquez to sort of twist my night and make me appear someplace else instead of, you know, three o'clock in the morning in the prison ward of Bellevue trying to get in an IV. And, and so these authors and their, and their poetic nature, the way they found beauty, even in blood and gore and death, um, was so tempting as a medical student and resident. And even though I don't write like that and don't live like that, it still remains what, what um, gives me sustenance literarily. I mean, the way you describe like, the, your appreciation of Marquez's work, and, and I loved Chronicle of Death Foretold, um, probably one of my, my favorite books of, of all time. Um, it sounds so much more appealing than the, than the medical dramas that are, that are out there on TV. For example, the, the overproduced um, shock trauma shows on ABC or But right, we already like live that. I don't need any more of that. Yeah. <laughs> I live that. I want, I want to be somewhere else. And I also want beauty. You know, we don't... Beauty doesn't get much shrift in medicine. You know, we're very practical. And beauty's impractical. It doesn't, you know, earn a grant, save a patient, advance research, be efficient, nothing. And that's what's so tempting about beauty because there really is a beauty in medicine, in that kind of the wriggling, alive part of, of humanity, the part that doesn't fit into a spreadsheet. That's what's appealing about medicine. I mean, I often think we're so fortunate. I mean, we could be in a windowless cubicle just, just sitting with a spreadsheet, but we, we get the honor of being with people in their complicated, irrational, difficult, brilliant lives that is itself a beauty, even when there's pain, vulnerability, death, mortality, um, it still has an aliveness that, that is its own beauty. And, and I think that we in medicine, we are so fortunate to, to be part of that. Wow. Um, so extending to your, your style of writing, um, when you write, it's typically on the, on the patient-physician relationship. Um, do you usually consult your patients when, when you're writing the stories about them? Do you let them read it? Um, or, or how do you share your drafts or your stories with other physicians when, when we live in an era of HIPAA compliance and worrying about that type of information? A lot of current people who write, either online or, or for themselves, are, are always terrified. There's one physician that I know who, who maintains the strictest of confidentiality on the internet. He's, he's a complete shadow, but he, he still writes, and it, he says he does that because of the fear of something he might get persecuted for it. Well, it's evolved over time. When I wrote my first book, it was then years after the stories had happened, and most of the patients were probably either dead or untraceable. Um, and so I, of course, changed details uh, as much as I could. 
um, to make them non-identifiable to anyone but, but themselves. I also thought long and hard about why am I writing this story? Is it just because of the shock value that's interesting more story? And to me, that, that, that didn't pass the bar. It had to have something that offered more. And I also wanted to be sure that I would render this in a respectful and almost in a transcendent manner that would, would if the patient were to come across it, they'd feel that I was doing them an honor and not exploiting them. Now, of course, that's a subjective thing, but for example, I had a story that I wrote an interesting experience with a patient who lied to me. A patient with whom I had a long relationship and helped out, bent over backwards for him, and he lied on a key thing to me. And when I found out about the lie, I was furious. And, and I wrote about it. I what an interesting issue of how, what we do when patients lie. But I realized that if I published the story, A, he was the kind of guy who might see the story, whereas many of my patients who don't speak English probably would, although that, that doesn't mean they don't deserve confidentiality, but he might easily come across it. But he would be hurt and insulted, I think, if he saw the story. And then I don't publish it, so then it's under the bed. So you can write whatever you want. Whether you choose to publish is a different story. Mm -hmm. So if I can't get consent from the patient, I, I have to think about, is it respectful? If they would come across it, would they see it as a respectful rendering uh, on that? And then I, if I can get consent, I try. Often what I'll do now is I'll just take a nugget of that and change everything else so that, that it's not, if it's not an intense portrait of a patient, it's really about a situation that's non-identifiable. But when I can, I ask patients if it's okay. And if they want to look at it, they can. I've certainly given my books to patients. Okay, great. Um, and, and do other doctors come to you typically for advice about the same thing? Because I'm sure you must have inspired, inspired your fair uh, yeah, share. Yeah, a lot of people. That's the question people ask them the most. And it's, you know, it's a challenging one, especially, you know, HIPAA has evolved over, you know, the course of my writing career. So we have to be careful. Um, I mean, some people like, like Rita Sharon at Columbia, she gets, you know, sort of official informed consent. I think Oliver Sacks, when you ask him, he feels that this is a joint story. And, and you know, obviously changes some names, but that it's a, it's a joint story. Um, so certain people ask that all the time. But really think about why you're publishing and whether it needs to be published. Just because you write it doesn't mean it needs to be published. You could have the, the cathartic experience of writing, and then you just put aside it just for you and your immediate colleagues. Okay. Well, um, we're almost at the, at the end of, mm -hmm. of our allotted half hour, so we kind of wanted to, we like to end our, our uh, a podcast and episodes a little bit more humorously and so mm -hmm. I, I have a feeling you might never have gone this question okay. before um, so for, for this question coming from our, our third co-host um, would you rather have spaghetti for hair that regenerates when cut or permanent Cheeto dust on your fingers permanent che Cheeto? Cheeto dust little <laughs> chip I would take spaghetti hair any day. Since I already kind of have spaghetti hair, I, I, it wouldn't be much of a stretch for me. So I'll okay. go with that. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time, okay. Dr. Ofri. I really appreciate all the stories and the value that you've added um, to, to a lot of the listeners. And I'm sure that you know many of them are aspiring writers or many of them have, have the need to kind of express themselves in some way. Um, so this has been probably one of the most valuable lessons that we can ever impart on our readers. For, well, thank you, for and, I, and I, I suggest your readers to check out the Bellevue Literary Review, which has a lot of writing in different styles, fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. With deal with these issues, I think they'll find it very helpful. All right, and they'll be able to subscribe online to that. They certainly can subscribe, and they can also submit. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. You're very welcome. So Amal and Rohit, what did you guys think about the interview? 
That was a really great interview. There's a lot of um, rich talking points that we can delve into on all of her topics. Um, but I guess we can start with empathy a bit. So interestingly enough, that's already impacting my career as a physician. When you're in medical school, you take kind of take two courses. You take your normal bio courses, and then on top of that, you take uh, what I like to call how to be a good doctor 101 type courses. And every medical school has these. In my medical school, during um, this how to be a good doctor 101 course, we were given a kind of a crash course in customer service. And all these customer service principles were actually derived from the hotel industry at first and then applied to the hospital industry. And it was interesting learning from this, this new discipline about how to make a customer happy within 15 minutes. And that seems kind of like an impossible task, but they give us all these mnemonics to remember because medical education, what is it without its mnemonics? Um, about how to make a patient happy in 15 minutes. And sometimes, you know, as a first-year medical student, it seemed kind of daunting to manage not only transcribing a good history and physical, but then on top of that, making sure that everything you say is up to, you know, is up to par with patient satisfaction. And then, of course, on top of that, it all varies. Not every patient is going to be satisfied the same way with their appointment. So... You know, it seems like a very challenging thing to accomplish, and um, it's something that we're all going to have to focus on going forward. Right. I mean, even drawing upon my own background, I spent a lot of time doing research in hospital readmissions, and a lot of times you hear <clears throat> doctors sort of talking about how, you know, they get measured sort of by the metric of readmission rate. So how long does it take for the patient to come back to the hospital and what percent of patients come back? But in that, you sort of miss a lot of the other factors, right? So with hospital readmissions, you miss sort of the socioeconomic conditions that relate to how, whether a patient comes back to the hospital, sort of the support system they have outside the hospital, things like that. Likewise here, when you're looking at patient outcomes, you have, like right now, we measure a lot of the quantitative elements of care. So Dr. Ofri was talking about A1C levels and how her sort of patient outcomes can be measured on that axis, but it's hard to fit in, you know, how do you fit in her humanistic elements of care and the empathy that she brings to patient care and how that affects patient outcomes along with the more easily quantifiable things. So it's sort of this, you know, there's this sort of established quantifiable element of what makes outcomes or what makes quality and this more nebulous sort of concept of empathy or humanism. And navigating the line between the two is going to be our biggest challenge. Great. Um, and so moving on, I wanted to talk about kind of her career trajectory. I think it was very interesting the way that she framed how everything happened. And in a way, it reminded me of um, Outliers by uh, Malcolm Gladwell in that she was in the right place at the right time. Um, and I don't want to call the 80s HIV epidemic quote-unquote, the right place or the right time. They were, they were both really tragic moments in, in our history. Um, but without that, you know, she could have just become another MD-PhD in, in, in neuroscience or neurology, uh, focusing potentially on, on different projects or working at the NIH, and we wouldn't have never had her writing. Um, how do you guys view that? And do you think this is going to come into play with your careers more um, and how you plan it out? I mean, it's really interesting sort of thing to think about, right? So, like... I mean, as I think the people that select into medicine tend to be people who favor, you know, a very track-based, very sort of approach, right? I mean, you sign up basically for eight years of your life or so or more to be set in stone. 
But it's really interesting that she sort of, you know, started off in neurology or this, had this interest in neuroscience and then kind of, like, fell off it into something more fortuitous. And it's, like, what she was saying about having, this, like, you know, being able to fall in love with the messy nature of something and then just to take time off to really embrace, you know, the ability to travel, the ability to you know, to see the world in a different way. It's fascinating. I think, like, as medical students and as aspiring physicians, the takeaway here really is to, you know, try to venture off the path once in a while and to try to see what else is out there because it's phenomenal what opportunities you can find when we least expect it. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Um, my example has to do with how I came about my research at OHSU. When I first came to OHSU, I was under the impression that there was no kind of uh, tech, med tech type research going on, and I was worried that um, I would be stuck doing wet lab work that I'd done during undergrad. And during undergrad, I realized that it wasn't that kind of research wasn't quite my thing. And um, and I came here, and I just had a serendipitous reaction with one of the administrators, and she said, "Hey, what kind of research are you interested in?" And I said, "Oh, I was like, you know, kind of like electronic health records, tech, anything like that." Um, but I was, I'm worried that OHC doesn't have anything like that. And she's like, oh, wait a second. And she fires off 10 different emails to five different investigators here who are all doing exactly that type of research. And, you know, within two minutes, I had, uh, or not two minutes, but within 24 hours, I had emails back from all these different professors asking me to join their labs. And if I had not had that interaction with that administrator, I don't think I would be in the research position that I would be in right now. And I'm hooked up with this lab. We're doing some really good electronic health record research. And Amol, as you said, this is a whole new world for medicine itself. We're kind of bringing in this idea of qualitative research into medicine, which has traditionally been a, a quantified field. Everyone likes the numbers. They like the charts and the trends. And bringing in qualitative research is just this whole new um, discipline that's really proliferating and that's actually very much required in this um, this age of um, qualitative metrics. Great. Um, and just talking about favorite books, you know, I, I'm, I was really glad that she had mentioned Marquez because, you know, he, he has recently just passed away, you know, rest in peace. Um, but I just wanted to, like, it made me question, you know, what was the last book I had actually written? I mean, to be honest, I, I couldn't really remember. Um, and most of the time, my commute's made up of just, you know, reading whatever's on my phone, on Twitter, or, or if I'm lucky, I'll have a copy of The New Yorker. Um, but, like, what, do you, what are the past things that you guys have read? Game of Thrones? <laughs> oh, wow, that's... <laughs> it's it's pretty old. Um, I haven't had a chance ever since med school started. I haven't had a chance to like just sit down and read something for just my enjoyment. My roommate actually, when I first moved in, um, he gave me a book called Osler's Bedside Library, and it contains excerpts from all the different books that Osler had at his bedside. And within one year, I've gotten through maybe fifteen pages out of. Uh, 130? No, 352. I just opened it up. <laughs> so there's definitely like a lot of reading I have to catch up on. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, and right here I'm actually working through Cutting for Stone right now, which is one of the required books for our orientation over at Vanderbilt. But 
it's really interesting what she says, right? Like, I mean, most of the books I read, this is totally a game shift for me because I'm used to reading nonfiction, books about sort of healthcare improvement or health technology or the future of technology. But this idea where she talks about, you know, where she talks in the interview about how magical realism is like an escape from the physical reality of medicine is really an interesting thought for me because a lot of what I read is really grounded in those physical realities. And I think there's a lot of value in her advice that branching out from books on like health policy or health practice into things that are sort of more about the humanities of medicine or the humanities of life in general. There's a lot to learn from that. Yeah. And uh, on a final note, just before we wrap up our, our discussion, um, what did you think about her recommendations on writing and privacy? I know a lot of people go to Dr. Ofri um, just for writing advice, and so this was kind of a valuable opportunity, especially with relation to HIPAA compliance. It's definitely important to consider what's worth publishing and what's not worth publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, after every, every week here in med school, I have preceptorship where I go um, basically shadow a doctor and talk to patients. And, you know, I could write a, a small post on my blog about that patient interaction, but it's not doing me, the public, or the patient any good. Um, it's just more something for me to reflect on. And, you know, I quite haven't found the point at which I know something about a patient is worth publishing, um, of course, in a very HIPAA-compliant fashion. Um, but it is important for med students, I think, who are interested in writing about patients to sit on their story for a while and before just, you know, pulling the trigger and publishing it just to, just to publish it. It's worth sitting and contemplating what the value of that story is. Exactly. So one of the things that Dr. Oprey touched on that I really liked was this idea that you have to really think about why you're telling a story or what you want people to get from the story. So for writing for just, you know, the shock value of it, it's really not doing the discipline or the topic much justice. But, you know, on a day-to-day basis, we do encounter some stories. I mean, just reflecting on my own encounters in EMS and patient care there, we do encounter some life lessons and some observations on clinical practice that the public or even our peers can really learn from. And I think when you have those kinds of situations, it's great to be able to really put them down in writing and to tell stories that everyone else can share with you. All right. Well, that's great discussion, guys. Um, I'm looking forward to the next time we can interview um, someone like that. And hopefully next time you guys will be able to join us. Um, So thanks for the discussion. Thank you. The H&P is a member of Vocalis, a podcast network for medical students. Please listen to our partners at vocalisnetwork.wix.com slash listen.